that the great King of glory has come to this earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, and at His resurrection inaugurated a new kingdom that will cover the earth one day as the waters cover the sea. The amazing thing that God has taken people like you and I, called us to be characters in this great grand narrative called the kingdom of God, and then called us to be carriers of that kingdom into the places we live and work and play. And I'm so thankful here to be sort of co-laboring with you and reminding ourselves of what it is God's called us to. Well, Tonight, I wanted, or this afternoon rather, I'm going to build on something tonight, but this afternoon I kind of wanted to sort of get out of sequence a bit. If you weren't here last night, last night I talked about the importance of understanding the big story of the Bible and where missions slots into that story. What I want to talk about now, when I say it's a little out of sequence, what I mean by that is simply... Uh, I'm going to get more into the concept of what it means to live missional lives later tonight and then in the morning. But I wanted to talk just briefly tonight about how we do that. What process do we employ to move from good intentions and even biblical conviction to actually engaging with the 24 hours in our day and the 168 hours in our week with the call of God in the world? What does that mean and how do we do it? To do that, we're going to look at a passage from 2 Timothy tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Let me pray for us and then we can dive in. Gracious Son of God, we worship you and we pray that through your Holy Spirit, applying your words to the heart of your people, you would unveil to us the beauty the wonder, the majesty, the mystery, the alluring power of the Son of God risen. And Father, may we in the light of His presence be transformed and changed for Your greater glory and for our richer joy and for the salvation of the nations. Amen. Last words. Lasting words. Memorable words. Meaningful words. Some last words are humorous. There was a Union general who was looking at a Confederate line back in the war between the states. And one of his men said, you need to watch out because those Confederate snipers will take you out. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this... (laughs) At that time, a Confederate bullet came and took the last word out of his mouth. Some are a little humorous with their irony. Others are mysterious. Just three weeks ago, my close friend Craig Brown, who's the pastor of City Church in Nashville, was at the deathbed of a 10-year-old little boy born with a chronic condition. And as he wove in and out of consciousness, in his last moments he became just lucid enough to say, Mommy, please push me. Please push me, Mom. The mother looked at him and said, Honey, I don't understand. Why are you saying push me? She said, and he said, I can't quite reach the angel's hand. And then he died. True story. Other last words are, are, are sort of dramatically tragic. You think of William Shakespeare's uh, uh, Caesar, where it says, uh, or, or, what am I, 
what is the William Shakespeare play I just totally forgotten with Caesar and Brutus? Louder? Yes, that. I still can't hear you, but I can't remember it either. You know, where you have Brutus or, or Caesar looking at Brutus and saying, E tu, Brute? Last words are usually significant, aren't they? Last words summarize, they, they complete, they inspire. Maybe you remember the, the last words of some treasured friend or relative that, they, that they, they said to you right before they stepped over the great divide into eternity. It's last words that so powerfully echo around our heart for a long, long time. They could be treasured words of hope or tragic reminders of unfinished business. Whichever they are, they're very meaningful. The book of 2 Timothy are the last words ever recorded by the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy was written from death row by a condemned man, writing about the very thing, he was just about to die for the very things he'd been living for. 2 Timothy was written to Timothy, and in just understanding the context of this book, you learn a lot about both of these guys. You, you learn about Paul. Here's Paul, a man who finished well. He didn't hit cruise control five years earlier and coast into the arms of Jesus. He went into heaven at full throttle. No reserve, no regret, no reverse gear in his heart. You also learn a lot about Timothy. Timothy was young. He lacked confidence. He's about to face the battle of his life as he follows God into the unknown and as his mentor dies. And it's the dramatic context of 2 Timothy that sort of just ratchets up the intensity factor. Last words always do that. Let me ask you a question that I believe is worth considering. What would you want your last words to be? Words that would sort of sum up your life legacy, your epitaph. I'm not trying to be morbid. In fact, far from being morbid, the, the Scriptures teaches us that it's actually a healthy thing to consider your end, to think about your legacy. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, the oldest psalm written by Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days, not, not our years, our months, our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. I remember sitting in Rose Hill Cemetery at my family's plot. It's, I guess my family's been here since Macon started. We used to call it the Ant Hill because all my ants are buried there. <laughs> and thinking that one day, one day I'm going to be pushing up daisies there. What's my life going to mean? The, the words of 2 Timothy sort of force us up into the crow's nest of our lives to survey the landscape, the bigger picture, to ask the question... What am I really living for? Where is this life trajectory taking me? You see, God created us for a reason. We were created with a profound sense of purpose. So what's your life mission? What are you living for? The great Russian writer Solzhenitsyn says, We always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. Ralph Waldo Emerson 
said this very wise statement, see the end of the journey in every step. You know, living our lives is a little bit like driving a car that's out of alignment. If, if you take your hands off the wheel of our lives, we have a natural tendency to gravitate towards a life that's safe and self-serving and comfortable in the short run, but that's empty in the long run. I mean, think about how much energy we spend into, into trying to define ourselves to create our own identity with things like our appearance, how we look, or our achievement, what we've done, or just amusement. Keep me entertained and I never want the problem motion of boredom. Or approval, we just want the clap of some treasured opinion or acclaim. Look at what I've done on my resume. But here's the thing, if you're a member of the kingdom, if you're following the king, your life has to be about more than that. If you're, if you're a member of God's kingdom, you've got to be involved in the mission of the king. But a lot of us are like the old comic, W.C. Fields. A friend once saw him reading a Bible and he said, you're not one to read the Bible, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. And a lot of us are like that. We hear this idea of being missionally connected in the kingdom of God and we, we look for loopholes, but they're not any. And that's okay. Because life, real life, life that goes beyond just existence, it, 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 the, the life God wants you to have, it comes when you give yourself to something bigger than yourself. It's when God's universal mission becomes your personal mission. When your life becomes about spreading light where there's darkness and healing where there's heartache, injustice where there's injustice. God created us for mission. And life is found as we begin to sync our stories with God's bigger mission. And so the question begins, the question therefore is how do we do that? And that's where 2 Timothy 2 comes in. Now to many of you, I'm going to be preaching to the choir here, so feel encouraged about getting something that affirms your biases. For others of you, I hope this challenges you to think through where my life fits into the big story of God. Let's begin by reading 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete... He does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. This is God's Word. This, this text has changed the way I've almost done everything in my Christian life. It reshaped the, the entire trajectory of my life. 
And so the question is, how do we invest in eternal things? How do we live missionally? How do we begin the process of sort of editing and reorging our lives around God's agenda in this area? Our passage shows us three things that we're just going to touch on. It shows us where the power for mission comes from. It shows us the strategy for mission. And it shows us the cost of mission. And though this is a missions conference, you're going to hear me talk again and again about mission. Because missions is a bigger, uh, is a bigger, is a subset of a bigger set called all of our mission in life. So let's begin by the power for mission. Verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wondered what the hardest job in the world is? Is it being Paris Hilton's boyfriend? Or Bernie Madoff's accountant? Or Lindsay Lohan's attorney? I believe the hardest job in the world is making disciples. Making disciples is the hardest job. I can't think of one harder. I meet people all the time, and when they hear I'm a pastor, I promise you that is typically a conversation stopper. But I had one person that said, now tell me exactly what you do with your week. And after I sort of recovered from that, uh, I know he had, he had images of, of the hammock, you know, swinging for six days and a round of golf after church on Sunday on the 7th. Um, but I said, you know, my job is to turn atheists into missionaries. That's my job. Maybe they're a real atheist or maybe they're practical atheists, but my job is to take them and to turn them into white, hot missionaries for the kingdom of God. And so how do you pull that off? Where does the power for mission come from? It's there in verse 1. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. It's grace. That's the foundation. That's the nuclear reactor. That's the power source of the whole deal. You've got to remember the context here. Context is critical. Let's remember why Timothy needed to be strong. Simply because the task was immense. The baton was being handed off. Paul's life was coming to an end. Timothy was taking over. And Timothy was young, and he is not someone you probably would have chosen to be on the varsity team to take the kingdom to the next level. We read that he was fearful and, and anxious and easily intimidated. He is an anti-hero, an unlikely hero. And look at whose shoes he was filling. The omnicompetent uber-successful Paul, everywhere Timothy looked, all he saw were dead ends. Barriers between God's call and where he was. There were personal barriers because of fears and insecurities. There were barriers within the church because you had all these people with competing agendas. There were barriers outside the church because he was facing persecution. Think about it. It was about to become public policy of the Roman Empire to exterminate guys like him. And so you talk about a fear factor to follow God into that? What are your barriers? Your barriers of honestly 
surrendering your life to the mission of God? What would move you from living life on your terms with your goals and your agenda to God's terms and God's goals and God's agenda? Because God's word to us is to be strong. Now, if he would have stopped there, it would have been really foolish. Because telling someone like Timothy to be strong is like telling a snail to hurry up or telling a pig to fly. Timothy wasn't strong, and that's the point. So this is not a in-your-face pep talk, a, a try a little harder, dig a little deeper. In fact, Paul was telling Timothy to reject every temptation to make it happen on his own. Instead, Timothy was to look to something else, to look outside of himself, to hope in something that was not him. It says, be strong in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so what we learn here is that when it comes to following God's mission, you don't start with you. You start with God. You don't look to yourself, what you bring to the table. You don't look to your experience or your spirituality or your training or your background. All those are good and all those are helpful and all those are used by God, but none of them is the ultimate source of your strength. God is. And what God expects from you, by His grace, He promises to accomplish through you. Timothy needed to start with the fact that he was indescribably, undeservedly, and yet unconditionally loved. Because Paul knew if that love could ever really get a hold of his heart, nothing would ever be able to shut him up. Because there's no motivator stronger than love. One of the darkest places in the darkest times in the 20th century was in a little place in southern Poland in the early 40s that was called Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a killing machine, a death camp. One of the first tenants in Auschwitz was a man named Father Maximilian Kolbe. He's a Jesuit priest who was very evangelical in his convictions. It was Father Kolbe that would give his blanket to another inmate, that would see to it that the starving inmates were given extra food. It was Father Kolbe that would whisper the 23rd Psalm into the ears of dying prisoners at Auschwitz. One night in August of 1942, the camp was awakened by sounds of sirens wailing and guards cursing and dogs barking. Someone, some group of people had escaped from one of the barracks in Auschwitz. The next morning as a commandant, called everybody out onto the marshalling grounds in the center of the camp. The prisoners expected to see the blood-stained, machine-gun-riddled bodies of the escapees hanging on the barbed wire. But this day, this August day, there was nobody there. The commandant demanded to know who had helped these prisoners escape. And they all sat out or stood out in the sweltering August sun and nobody moved. For eight hours they stood there as the commandant awaited someone to fess up. Nobody did. Well, as two men escaped, the commandant decided that ten men would die from that barracks. They were sentenced to something called the starvation bunker, which is just what it sounds like it was. 
Men would be stripped of their clothes, put in this bunker, uh, a concrete bunker with no windows and a steel door, and they would simply stay there until they starved to death. As the commandant called names out, one man particularly began to scream and cry, my wife, my children. Father Colby, risking his own life, broke rank, walked to the commandant and said, may I die instead of this man? Now, any other time when you broke rank like that, you could expect a bullet in the back of the head for your trouble. The commandant looked at him and said, what what are you talking about? He said, listen, I'm old. I'm of no use. This man is much younger than me. The commandant, in typical Teutonic precision, crossed out the man's name, asked uh, asked Father Colby's serial number. He told it to him, and he said, who are you? He said, I'm a pastor. Father Colby led the group into the starvation bunker, and this time, instead of the the blood-curdling screams that were normally heard as the men would cannibalize one another in the bunker as they all went crazy, dying of starvation and thirst, this time there was singing being heard. As the men sang hymns, as there was a great shepherd to lead them through the valley of the shadow of death. He was the last one to die, by the way. Some ten days later, the door was opened. Father Colby was still alive. They ended his life with a syringe of cyanide. No motivator is stronger than love. The amazing thing is, is that that's not the end of the story. The rest of the story is even more amazing because against all odds, the prisoner whose life was spared by Father Colby survived. His name was Francis Gajanacek. And for the next 53 years... Until he died at the age of 95, he devoted his life to sharing the story of the fact that Father Colby had died for him. He told his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, anyone who was willing to listen about the man who died that he might live. And he said, it was my vow that as long as I have breath in my lungs, it is my mission to honor the one who died for me. And nobody made him do it. Because no motivator is stronger than love. If we are followers of Christ, being part of the mission isn't an elective. It's the only sane response to grace. Those who have been loved by God and those who are being healed by His grace have a hard time shutting up about Him. And this is where your involvement in God's mission starts. You recognize that you, me, with all of our shortcomings, we, with all of our sin, we are the object of an affection that our brains don't have the capacity to even imagine. You stretch your imagination all the way to the breaking point, and the elasticity of your imagination will absolutely pop as you begin to consider just a thimbleful of the love of God for you. The only response to that sort of love is a passionate one. No one who watched Jesus die on the cross was indifferent. They loved Him or they hated Him. One of the saddest stories on the news in the last few years was the story of Bernie Madoff, a man who embezzled people's money in a Ponzi scheme. I'll never forget during that time I was reading through Romans and I remember reading Romans 1.14 where Paul says, I am a debtor to all men because of grace. And I thought, 
Lord, am I like Bernie Madoff spiritually? Do I embezzle grace with no thought of why it was given to me? We're not called to embezzle grace. We're called to give it away. Paul was a debtor, not a deadbeat. But here's the thing. If you see that the hard part, namely that the strength for mission is ours in our union with Christ, if you see it's already been taken care of, the power to do it, where do we start? How do you be part of something so immense as the kingdom of God? It's the same way you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. Because verse 1 says our hearts should be open to God, but verse 2 says that if our hearts are open to God, our hands will be open to others. And so we see the strategy for mission. It's very simple. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is so obvious, it's just a no-brainer, a, a duh moment. Uh, but we have such a hard time going from what is true, verse 1, to what to do in verse 2. There's this long, hard road between our heads, what we know to be true, our hearts, what we've accepted is true for us, and our hands, the way we live. But the strategy for mission is real simple. Just observation number one is you get discipled. You have to be discipled. Uh, observation one is that Timothy was in a position to hear the things you've heard from me, it says. But he didn't just hear. He actually invested a lot of time trying to chase Paul around. And let's be honest, man, Paul wasn't the easiest guy to follow. He went to the hardest places and, and did the hardest things. But for the sake of the gospel, Timothy made decisions to follow him around. He made a decision to be under the influence of someone else. To open, to open up his life to be loved on, honestly to be taught by and probably even confronted by Paul. And that's risky. It's always a risky thing to open up your story to somebody else. Instead of taking people on self-guided tours of your heart, or instead of taking people on a, a guided tour of your heart, you give them some flashlight of honesty and you let them take a self-guided tour of your heart. That's scary. But it was a risk that Timothy was willing to take. Have you ever thought about who's influencing you right now? We're all being influenced by people. I mean, it, probably a lot of people and ideas. There's Hollywood. There's, there's the drivel that comes out of talk radio endlessly, designed to make you mad, but not really give you anything to do about it. There's the American dream. There are ad agencies. There's songwriters. Maybe it's some voice in your past that sort of has your number. Have you made the decision to put yourself in a position to be invested in, to be influenced by somebody who wants to see God's mission fulfilled in your heart and in your life? Because the obvious response, according to this passage, uh, to being impacted by the power for mission is to submit yourself to the strategy for mission, namely discipleship, journey groups, things like that. But... Timothy had the privilege of hearing, but then he had, the he had the obligation of transmitting. He hears, he transmits. He's called to be a conduit, not a reservoir. He's called not just to be a conduit, though, but an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And so the strategy for mission number two is you disciple others. Entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. 
He entrusted the mission. He entrusted the message of the kingdom to Timothy. And Timothy in turn was to find faithful people, not perfect people, but people who were faithful. In fact, the, the, the primary qualification for changing the world is, is just knowing Jesus and being available. You don't have to know very much. Verse 2 says that we're to entrust it, that we're to give it away, pass it on. That the gospel that is so meaningful to you and I is not for private consumption only. I love the Olympics and I can't wait. I like the Summer Olympics. I'm not into the Winter Olympics. I don't do curling and weird stuff like that. I like Summer Olympics with things like track and field that I get. And this summer, as there is going to be the Olympics in London, my favorite event of all the track and field events is the 4x100 meter relay. Because it involves both brute power and this sort of finesse-like symphony of motion where you hand one thing off to another. And could you imagine being in this Olympic arena, running the 4x100, and the crowd of thousands is cheering, and the, and, and the TV crowd of a billion is watching? And, and you watch the, the gun go off, and here comes one runner passing it to another runner, passing it to the third, and all of a sudden, here comes a baton, and a guy just takes it. And he looks at it, and he says, that's cool. And he puts it down and starts watching another reality TV show. We would be livid. You forgot the purpose of it. And yet we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and saint after saint, some faithful, some not, have passed the baton on to us and history will judge our generation. What did we do with it? No, you're to get discipled, then you disciple others. You're to work and labor for God's glory in the life of another. You're to take the message of Scripture heart and by God's grace, you're to hand it off to another person. And you may not know one, but you pray and you ask God for another man, another woman, who's maybe not quite as far along as you are spiritually. Think about this with your children or your grandchildren. I mean, dads, dads. My brother is one of the youth pastors here. And he's great at it. But don't outsource the spirituality of your children to the church. You can do this at home. You teach them what you received. You care for them with the tenderness of Christ. You encourage them to do the same. It's just intentional relationships. I'm going to explain to you just, uh, just a quick story, and then we'll, we're, we're almost done, about how this works. Uh, I had a guy do this with me. He led me to Christ. The, the, the night he led me to Christ, which is, was late at night, he told me to go tell my roommates what had happened. So I did. He told me to meet him the next morning at 6 a.m. to study the Bible. So I did. And then this, this, this guy began to give me a vision for how maybe my life could change my fraternity house. And I didn't believe him. But he said, your mission field needs to be across the street, so why don't you move in there and see what God does. And I did, and, and God worked. And one of the first people who came to faith in Christ was my brother Mark, who's now your youth pastor. For some reason, I've always had this heart to reach China. I don't know why. I don't like Chinese food. And I would, I would speak awful Mandarin with my accent. But I've always had a heart for China, maybe because it's a billion-plus people. And I remember 
one of the first guys I discipled was a guy named Jeremy Kicklighter. And Jeremy Kicklighter, uh, man, he talked really slow because he was from Pembroke, Georgia, and you would swear he just fell off the back of a turnip truck on a dirt road. And he got it in his mind as I was discipling him that he wanted to go reach the nation of China. And I remember thinking, you'd be a terrible missionary to China. You're big and scary. You talk funny. But his passion took him to a little place called Woohoo, China. There's a place like that. And for five years, he labored in the hearts and lives of Chinese students. And there's actually now a church there that is the fruit of his life and labor. There's a guy in, in Atlanta I discipled when I was there that decided he wanted to get an MBA and he applied to Harvard, but he realized he could get in the Chinese equivalent of Harvard, and if he went there, he would be touching the top 0.0001% of Chinese culture if he got in there. So he decided to go get his MBA in Beijing at this school, and I can't pronounce the name. But, but, but he began to labor there and live there, and now he still lives there, and he's like, uh, he he's actually owns a company there with the idea of running the company on kingdom principles. But I say all that to say that I've never even been to China, but on some small way my life is impacting the country of China because God put people in my life that I could shape the way they thought about life in the world, and now they're there doing it. And there's a profound principle that this sort of, for all of us, just personally, spiritually, that you don't really get the gospel till you start to give the gospel. We end up just being theologically overweight and under-exercised because it wasn't designed to be just a good idea that makes us feel groovy in our little inner special spot. Life in the kingdom is not found by hoarding life. It's found by giving it away. But it's hard, and that's why, lastly, the cost of mission. I'm going to go through this super quick. You've got to get out of your comfort zone, which is fine, because though God is omnipresent... He's really not in your comfort zone. Not like you want him anyway. Uh, there are all these distractions we have to watch out about. It says that. Watch out if you're a civilian. Uh, one of the craziest stories I've ever heard is Eastern Flight 401 was flying from LaGuardia Airport in New York down to Miami on Christmas Eve of ni- or, uh, December 23rd of 1975 or 76. It was a Lockheed L-1011 getting ready to go into final descent, and uh, that was back in the days when you had a pilot, co-pilot, and a navigator, flight engineer. Flight engineer realized that uh, the light that says the landing gear is supposed to be down didn't come on, and he thought for sure the landing gear was down, and so he began to fiddle thinking the light bulb's out. He tried to unscrew it, couldn't get it unscrewed. Co-pilot saw what was going on. He got up out of his seat. He came over and tried to help him. They couldn't get it undone. They had to land the plane. Pilot got frustrated with him. He got up. And then you have three highly paid professionals trying to take this 75-cent light bulb out. They didn't know this, but the pilot actually knocked the autopilot off when he got out of his seat. And that flight, Flight 401, crashed into the Everglades and killed a bunch of people on board. I shared that story one time, and somebody said, you know what? Somebody in the audience came up and said, I was on board that plane. I couldn't believe it. But they were distracted. They were entangled. We're called to live simply so others can simply live to not get entangled. It also says we're not to be disobedient. It says we're to play according to the rules. 
The athlete must compete. We don't want to be spiritual uh, Mark McGuire's full of steroids that nobody respects. Because there's nothing more nauseating than hypocrisy, and in the same way, there's nothing more beautiful than sincerity of heart. And you might not know hardly any of the answers, but somebody can spot sincerity a mile away. And then discipline. Hardworking farmer. How do, we, how do we do these, get over these distractions, not be disobedient and be disciplined? It goes back to where we started, the love of God. And the truth is that you find your life when you give it away. Adam lost a rib and gained a wife. Because in the kingdom you don't outgive God. Will you pursue God's agenda? Will you lay down your small dreams? Will you give yourself permission to dream redemptively and to imagine what would it be like to lay all of your broken pieces into the nail-scarred hands of your Redeemer and then give Him the full right to do with you as He so sees fit? Maybe He just wants to write a small, a small little sentence. Maybe He wants to write a big story. You aim at heaven, C.S. Lewis said, you get earth thrown in. You aim at earth, you get neither. Life's a vapor. We're called to be on mission. Don't surrender your soul to the status quo. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to have our missions partners here with us. We're so grateful for their labor in the world and the way that they can see the beauty and the variety of how you work in all sorts of places. Father, we pray now as we go to our breakout times that you would give us hearts open to hearing your voice. Father, speak through our partners and God, may we encourage them as they encourage us in their perseverance in the gospel. We lift these things up for your glory. We pray that your kingdom would come. In his name we pray, amen.